Hi, I'm Angela Lucier, a professional public speaker, seven-time author, two-time TEDx speaker, and CEO and founder of the Speaker Sisterhood, a network of public speaking clubs for women. And I'm Dr. Jolie Hamilton, a research psychologist, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and ASEC certified sex educator. Together, we're the hosts of Claim the Stage, a podcast about speaking and sisterhood. If you've been a fan, you know I've been doing this show solo, and it's been all about public speaking for years. Well, that all changes now. Well, you're still talking about speaking on stage, but now we're also going to focus on the three things that you need to make an impact, your voice, confidence, and sisterhood. The show is a training ground to go from dreaming to creating. Right. And we'll still be doing interviews with expert guests. Plus, you'll also get more personal stories and insights from us as well. I'm really excited to see where this goes. Me too. And slightly freaked out. Yeah, me too. Welcome to the next chapter of Clay on the Stage. Hey, Jolie. Hey, how are you? (laughs) Good. How are you doing? Doing okay. Surviving. (laughs) Yeah. We're talking about a big subject today, and I thought it would be nice to name the interview How to Speak Up and Live for Yourself, because our guest today wrote a book called Selfish, and that, that word brings up so many feelings and thoughts. And I'm excited to talk about your experience with being selfish and I'll share a little bit of mine. And then we're going to get into the interview with Nikita Renthigpen, who wrote the book on the subject and how you go from feeling like you're living for everybody else to living for yourself. But before we do that, why don't you tell the story about how we found Nikita? Nikita, Nikita appeared magically in my life as, as most wonderful things do. I was listening to a, um, an interview by somebody I respect in the podcasting world, Jessica Rhodes. And she said she had, she had to introduce this person to the world. Like she, she just wanted to have this conversation. She's going to talk to somebody who was an expert in balancing business and love. And I'm like, whoa, that's my expertise too. I have to find out who this person is. So I start listening to the two of them talk and I cracked up through the whole thing. So I'm like, I could be part of this conversation. I know I know that happens a lot to a lot of people. And when it does, you're like, oh, there are my people. I want to hang out with those people. I didn't think much of it. They were on StreamYard at the time. So I was trying to like comment to some of the questions that they were asking the audience, but they couldn't see who it was because StreamYard doesn't always let you see. Um, but I lucked out because at some point I said something, I guess, so audacious that Jessica realized it was me. (laughs) She's like, I think that's Jolie. And from there, Nikita asked me to make a, a connection with her. And when we did, we instantly talked for an hour. We had so much overlap, so much, um, so much in common in coming from backgrounds that told us never to put ourselves first. And yet that being the only way to move forward like that being caught in the, in that tension. Um, but we both talk about sex. We both talk about love. And so I just think Nikita's amazing and, um, such an engaging person who has had such a shockingly challenging life. And I'm, I'm one who loves perspective. 
I love per- perspective taking. I think that it it keeps me grounded. It keeps me remembering that though I have experienced trauma, it is so not on the scale of what other people have gone through. And I love that. That helps me like recenter myself. Like I can manage this. I can get through this because other people have gotten through much worse. It's, it's, that's really helpful to me. I just yeah. like some days when it all feels too much. I'm like, there are people going through worse right now. Yes. So then well, I put my feet on the floor. Yeah. Well, after you talked to her, you had either called or texted me about how excited you were to have made that connection. And you sent me a link to her book. And as soon as I saw it on Amazon, I was like, okay, I need that book. And we both read it before we talked to her. And I remember as I was going through, I'd say the first half of the book, the thought I kept having was, I can't believe what she's been through and who she is today. How do you go from this to that? And I even asked her that question in the interview, because I was so curious without having role models, without having any sense of how to get out of what she was living through. How do you find the path and how do you believe in yourself enough to know that taking that path will lead you out of it? And she's just such an incredible person with such strength. And I don't even know if she really sees that strength because it's been there all along and she is just who she is, but it was so evident in each story she told. And when the word selfish first comes up in the book, it's when she's telling the story about having to get out of her mother's house because of all of these sexual advances being made by her mother's partners. Um, she has to leave her baby brother behind and it's the biggest and hardest decision she's had to make in her life up to that point because she had to save herself. And so she thought of herself as selfish and she lived with guilt for doing that, but she realized the only way she could save herself was by taking that move. And it was such an act of bravery and incredible courage, but also wisdom of like, I have a bigger life I need to lead. And if I stay here, that life will never happen. And that's so powerful as a, when you're, when you're reading it, thinking, man, she was, she was what, like, I think 16 or 15, I think. Yeah. Like freshman year. Yeah. 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 Just so incredible. And the, the story she tells getting through her twenties and her thirties, it's just, it's remarkable. And so her book is called selfish and the subtitle is permission to pause, live, love, and laugh your way to joy. So I'll just say when I got the book, I thought it was going to be more of like a how-to book and then found out it's actually her, her memoir. It's a survivor's memoir. And she doesn't tell you how to do all these things, but through her stories, you pull the lessons out of it and start to see, oh, okay. So she could have taken door number one, door number two, door number three, but she chose the door that led her to getting her, finding her way to joy. And it's an amazing story of, of resilience and strength. Yeah. So choosing herself is like every time, every story that I read, I was like, the decision to choose yourself has been labeled selfish in a, in a negative way for so long that I am so glad she's reclaimed that particular word because the selfishness, the move toward herself, it, it actually calls into question. Why do we think of selfish? Like why, how did that word get that particular connotation? And I don't know the etymology of it enough to know, but I think about like coming, when we think about being self-led, that's what I think Nikita's doing. Being, being self-led, like following a guidance that that she feels is beyond her, you know, deeper than her her ego. 
really leaning into that. But it, but the willingness and ability to do it at six and seven and 11 and 15, that's remarkable. Mm-hmm. remarkable. What shows up for you when you think of the word selfish? For me, I, I feel the baggage of, of my own, eh, not stories as stark as Nikita's at all, but, but the stories where I have chosen myself and have been accused of being selfish. And in particular, it seems attached to my, my womanhood and my motherhood. It, it feels like it's attached to my femininity. Um, like I wouldn't have been accused of being selfish <laughs> doing these things if I were a guy, if I were a dude. Um, so I think about moments where I, I decided to choose myself, but then I, I also think about the moments where I didn't, I mean, I stayed home with my, my first child unexpectedly, didn't know I was going to, um, but decided to stay home with her and she was incredibly high needs, super sensitive. So I never left. Like I, I never left. She just screamed and cried if I left. So I never left her side. Um, I didn't leave her side for a minute for eight months and I didn't put her down to sleep anywhere till she was like 11 months old. It was exhausting. And I wouldn't go back and necessarily redo it, but I remember feeling this deep internalization of if I don't choose her needs at every step, every move, every time, then I'll, I'll be, that'll be selfish. It'll be wrong. I'll be everything that people accuse me of being, um, and it, it led me to a lot of, a lot of self-hate then, because then you get into the, the mom guilt and the postpartum depression and all of that. So it all started to layer up together. And honestly, you asked me that. And I think, I don't think I can sort it out from the other mess of feelings that have to do with my motherhood and just trying to balance it all, mm-hmm. trying, you know, trying to balance it all. Yeah. What feelings come up when you think of the word selfless? think of not me. I instantly just go like somebody else. That's not me. Even though you spent 11 months with your baby strapped to your body. Yeah. That, like that wasn't selfless. That's never, no, I would <laughs> never, ever, that is not a word I would ever use to describe myself Huh? ever. I don't know. I just never would. What about you? What do you, yeah. like, what do you feel when you like the word selfish, what pops up? It's the opposite of how I've wanted to live my whole life. Like anytime there was a selfish choice, I would choose the other one because I never wanted to be seen as selfish. I never wanted to make anyone else feel like they weren't important because I was choosing myself and my own needs first. And I think when you're codependent, you do everything in your power to not be selfish because everyone else's needs are more important than yours. So spending so much of my life wanting to people please and take care of everyone else meant like there was no room to be selfish. And I remember a few years ago, I had said yes to doing a speaking engagement and it was like February and the speaking engagement wasn't taking place until November. And I'd sent a speaking contract over to the client with my speaking fee on it. And they had signed everything and it was all ready to go. And then a month before the engagement, they reached out to me and said, we're a nonprofit and our budget isn't exactly what we expected it to be at this time of year. And so we're asking if you can cut your speaking fee in half because we just don't have the money to pay you what we thought you would, we would have. 
And I got that email. And my first thought was I have to help them because they're a nonprofit and they need me. And I already said I would do it. And I held the date. And then I sat with that for 24 hours. And I had a lot of feelings about what I should do in that situation. And when I thought I should, I should keep the fee that I requested and that they, they uh, committed to, my first feeling was, well, that's really selfish. I'm not being a team player. I'm not trying to help the nonprofit because that's what I should do. That's what a good person would do. And I had to go and like unravel all of these beliefs about what a good person is versus a person who doesn't care about others, what is being selfish and what isn't. And ultimately I said to them, we agreed on this fee. If you didn't, if you knew that this money was going to be committed to the speaking engagement. So you should have put it aside already. And I can't change my fee at this point. So we can either take the engagement off the books or we can go forward with what we, we decided on. And of course I felt guilty about that decision for a long time because I never wanted to come across as someone who wasn't willing to negotiate or um, to change my mind to, to go with the circumstances. But I also was starting to realize that I needed to take care of myself too. And there was a lot of selfishness stuff coming up that whole time, but I did, you know, they did end up paying my fee. I did the speaking engagement. Uh, they never hired me again. I don't know exactly why, but I remember the woman who hired me standing in the back of the room during my speaking engagement. And the whole time I was thinking, she's so mad. (laughs) I don't know if she was or not, but selfishness and this topic of trying to um, take care of yourself can be so, uh, such a gray, messy, mucky area because it does feel like when you're taking, or for me, when I'm taking care of myself, uh, someone else is losing because of it, but that's not the case. Right. We're not in a zero sum game, but there, we have been trained through capitalism and patriarchal influences to, to operate that way. We feel that way. And in some circumstances there is like, there can be a finite budget for something, but we're not like, (laughs) we're not living in a zero sum. There's so much abundance and there's so much abundance of feeling too. If they had asked you for a lower rate at the beginning, that would have been a different ask. It's, I can feel in there, the manipulation that could be present. It might not be, but it can be. Nonprofits are not without people who know how to manipulate. I, like they're, they're not, nobody, like lots of people know how to manipulate situations to their own benefit. I've had rates, you know, attempted to change. I've had people um, try to get me to drop my fee altogether. Um, but I've also had people at- approach me from a very real place of like, so I have this need and I know you're a person who might be able to fill this need. And, and like, they offer up the, the negotiation, yeah. I, I, they, they offer it. And that feels like a really authentic place to negotiate from versus getting, getting like sort of hit with it out of nowhere mm-hmm. after something's already agreed upon. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, this is hard. Selfishness isn't it's not just one thing. I mean, because at the same time, I, I think about the people who I have felt in my life were acting selfishly, were, um, and not in a positive way, people who were acting um, not from their, not from their best selves and taking more than their fair share time after time, after time, after time. Those people exist too. 
I, yeah. maybe we need two different words. <laughs> yeah, I think we do. And I like earlier when you kind of separated self from ish, kind of like self hyphen ish, yeah. that makes the word feel so different to me. It doesn't have that feeling of like, I only care about myself. Everyone else can go screw, screw themselves. Like, right. it, doesn't have that, like, it doesn't have that same feeling. It's like, you're just thinking about yourself. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. It's almost like just so deeply ingrained that I need to be there for other people that thinking about being selfish, just, it's like really hard to even have that conversation with myself. But if I think uh, self-care, like self-care can be the same exact thing as being selfish. It just has a different label on it. Right. I think that's, that's it. I believe that was Nikita's point really all along is that by, by being selfish, by, by shifting ourselves so that we can take care of ourselves, we have the capacity then to be part of community. We, we can, we have something to give. We we're part of a, a system that, um, you know, our friends, our family, who, whatever our, our clients, even we we're part of something then, and there's give and take, but we are trained to give as far as we like, as far as we can go. And then some more. Um, and that training comes in a million ways. I mean, we were just talking about in past episodes, the good girl or the, um, the, you know, owing people owing somebody. And I think about that. I, I hold the idea of selfishness next to, do I owe someone an interaction? No, I don't. Okay. Then is this selfish? Ah, only in the, only in the good Nikita way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a great point. So we talked about owing people things, the good girl um, epidemic. Yeah. <laughs> um, we talked about how to sell and how to really own your worth. And now we're talking about being selfish. And I think the core of those four topics is actually about self-worth. Right. And the more you value yourself, the less inclined you are to do all of those things, to act like the good girl, to owe people or feel like you owe people things, to be afraid of asking for the money that you require in order to like to do your job. And then also to take up space and time in the in the world. And I know so many women who really struggle with these topics. So I'm hoping that this series of episodes really reaches them because at the core of it is when you, when you do value yourself and you feel that sense of self-worth, you are so much more likely to speak up for what you need and for what's important to you. And like, that gets me really excited that we're kind of approaching speaking from this point of view, because there's so much layered underneath using our voice. Right. Right. Speaking up, asking for what we need and being willing to name needs that maybe not everybody has. It's okay for your needs, not, you know, your, your worth is there and your needs aren't going to look like everybody else's. Maybe that's one of the ways it starts to feel selfish. We're like, well, they didn't ask for this particular, whatever that particular thing is. Yeah. They might not need that. Yeah. If we could allow ourselves all to be different and for our worth to stem from different places, maybe it would, maybe it would work differently. Yeah. I think it can be such a, an eye-opening exploration if we're yeah. willing to take it. I want to share a, a little passage from Nikita's book. It comes at the end and I, I circled it because I thought it was so perfect and really helped to sum up the message of the book. She says, 
Having the audacity to create my own joy means I get to selflessly serve at the highest level and initiate a movement comprised of other selfish women who dare to get what they want. I now want to take care of myself before anyone else. I can nourish others from the lessons learned, curated in the vessel that was crafted from the pain that I alone endured. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot of powerful words in that passage, like the word audacity. Mm Mm-hmm. And then she uses selfish again. And then she talks about pain and it's like, she's harnessing all of those experiences that could have stopped her and she's turning them into power. Yeah. I, I love the word audacity. I think that it, it really hits home for me because when I was a kid, that was sort of, that was the thing that was thrust at me. Like, who do you think you are? Yep. Man, that stupid sentence. I hate that sentence. Who do you think you are? And the answer was, I didn't know, but I knew she was tough as nails. So she wasn't going to back down, right? That's all I knew about that little girl. She wasn't going to back down, which just led to more questions, more and more accusations. Like the stronger I presented, and that I think is where I felt Nikita's story. Like she was willing to throw down with anybody at any point. She was going to take care of what needed to be taken care of. Moving from that phase of being willing to be audaciously, boldly, um, overtly, even dangerously, uh, aggressively forward, right? Like moving from that into being audaciously calm and collected and grounded and in my self-worth, that's the work of my forties. Yeah. (laughs) And I feel it every single day. I'm like, Oh, I don't have to fight for it anymore. Mm -hmm. I can be it. Yeah. Like she had the reckoning and and now she's in the aftermath of just sort of like sitting in it. Yeah. Which is a nice, yeah. It's a calming feeling. And I think when you, when, when you're willingness to lean into joy comes from multiple traumas and tragedies layered with systematic oppressions, like all of this together. Of course, it took years to really fully understand what all of that was bringing her towards. That makes perfect sense to me. And I'm glad that she, I'm glad that she can wrap it up in, in such a, um, a a profoundly personal memoir. It's, it's hard to read. It's not, it's not easy. Like she said, it's like trigger warning all over it. Like it, this is hard stuff, but that, but it led her to this place where leaning into joy and creating a pause for herself or, and being selfish is, it, it, it's the only antidote to all of that, to all of the experiences, all the times where she had to, yeah, like pull herself out of misery and pain and tragedy. Yeah. Were there any uh, stories in the book or moments from the interview that stood out to you that you want to share? You know, there were a bunch in the book that stood out to me, but actually the thing that got me in the interview was um, when she was talking about <laughs> about being a person who looked dope on paper, looked great, like, yep, like we got it. Like we're the couple or we're the, per- like we're the person, we've got everything figured out on paper, but inside knowing that you haven't actually got what you're capable of. And, and I'm not sure we dove into it as much in the interview as we could have. Um, there is, there is a capacity for joy 
in all of us, in our, in our couplehoods, in our, in ourselves, in our, in our relationships with our children, like there's this capacity for joy and it's different for everybody and for every relationship, but you know, when you're not at it, <laughs> it's, it's not that it's the same for everybody, but you know, when, yep, it all looks good on Instagram, but there's so much more available. And that's where I felt like that was where my work needed to be. I had been in a marriage before where it's not that we weren't happy. We were, we were as happy as we could be doing things the way we were. The next step was going to have to be a series of selfish steps for both of us. We couldn't tolerate it. Like we, we just couldn't tolerate doing those things next to each other. We'd been so codependent. Um, I, I loved listening to her talk about, yeah, it's, it's okay to want to be as happy as you know, you can be like, it, it doesn't have to be, it's not some predetermined level. You're, you don't get to be this, you know, you don't get to ha- live your life at 10 X. You can actually go for a hundred X life. I love that. Cause I always feel like, yeah, my life is pretty awesome. It's, it's amazing, but I want more. Yeah. And that's what wakes up my, do I get to want more? Is that selfish? Do I like, I have an amazing partnership. Do I get to want more than that? Am I being greedy? Mm. But I know I'm capable of more. And every time I step into that more, new parts of myself become available, not just to me, but to the whole world. So that's a good move. That is an actual generative move. It's um, removing some of the layers of armor all over me, stopping me from interacting with the world. But boy, the pushback. Yeah. to stay just insta happy yeah. <laughs> instead of really happy. <laughs> it's strong. It's strong. Yeah. I find that when I step into more, I find out there's more yeah. on the other side of more. There's like more and then there's more and it just keeps on pouring into more. Right. <laughs> really I mean, that's no limit. I just, the only limit is the limit that we place on ourselves. Right. And the, and the, I was raised to imagine a limited world. I don't know how you were raised, but my, my parents' imagination of what was possible was limited. And that was explicit. Like they, they really imagined ceilings. Yeah. Um, They imagined the striation of our culture, our society. They imagined it. It was very real. There was a lot of language that was very imagistically, very, very concrete about like your place in the world. And um, I married up (laughs) big old air quotes. I married up both times I got married. I married up because I married out of my socioeconomic bracket and my parents like, like knew, like it was a thing. And yet, and yet my first marriage didn't serve me at all. And my second marriage is so not about that. (laughs) It's, it's funny to me, but that was a thing. Their, their um, estimation of what was allowed limited my imagination of what more could be. It did feel like there were ceilings. And now I'm in this part of my life. And I think, what was the purpose of that, of, of all those limitations, all those imaginary limitations? Like I I try to imagine my parents looking at their children. My parents weren't the kind of parents who said, you can be anything you want. They just weren't. They, they instead tried to offer options that were realistic and those were realistic to them, not realistic to me. And that meant that I, yeah, I didn't wind up finishing school and doing all that I did until I was much, much older. I, I took a 20 year hiatus. Yeah. I, if I had been selfish back then, maybe I would have imagined past those barriers. 
I, and I'm now realizing the irony of the first chapter of project relationship is wanting more. <laughs> oh, uh-huh. huh. <laughs> oh, I guess this is a theme. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, as we're talking about it, I'm thinking it would be great to just keep that word selfish, maybe on a post-it on my computer or in front of my computer so that I'm constantly looking at it and reminded that it's something I want to keep thinking about and reevaluating and deciding how I want to define that word and yeah. not yeah. letting whatever story I have around it lead me. And yeah. Uh, that's one of the fun things I love about this podcast is like, we take a lot of different subjects that are important to women, but also that we're evaluating in our life too. So we can continue learning from them as well. So before we get into the interview, I wanted to share a little bit more about Nikita. Nikita Renthigpen, LCSW, regarded as the number one balance and relationship advisor in the world, which is such a great title. What a title. (laughs) Has become the go-to for fast-scaling married women, entrepreneurs, and power couples seeking to balance love and success without dimming or apologizing for their spirited ambition. What a sentence. As creator of the Breakthrough Paradigm, the Joy Map Method, international best-selling author of the book Selfish, transformative empowerment speaker and CEO of ThigPro Balance and Relationship Management Institute, Nikita and her team set out every day to inspire, equip, and empower her client partners to amplify intimacy 360% across all key relationships so they can create joy and achieve whole success. Nikita is the real deal. She has gone through it all. She's learned from her own life. She's continued to grow and take on new challenges as she has learned and grown herself. And if you want to learn from someone who's been there, she's your woman. So uh, without further ado, here's our interview with Nikita. Nikita Ranthigpen, welcome to Claim the Stage. Thank you for hosting me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to see you today. I'm kind of fangirling over here because I got your book and I got a chance to read it and was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're talking to her next week. <laughs> she's so <laughs> she's so cool. You've done so much with your life and you have made so many pivots and you've just taken on so many challenges and learned so much. And I know you have a lot to offer our audience. And we thought it would be so great to talk with you about the subject of speaking up and living for yourself because you are doing that and you're a great example of it. And I know you have so much to say about it. But before we get into that, do you want to give a quick kind of synopsis of how you got into the work you're doing today, just to give a little background to our audience? Yeah. I mean, that's the simplest way for everyone to connect to the idea of what a balance and sexology and relationship advisor is, is to know that it started from a personal place of brokenness. Um, Growing up in an extremely dysfunctional family, being a multi-systemic trauma survivor, I I wanted different from my life. I didn't know what different would look like. You know, the five-year-old me was like, I'm going to be a pediatrician and I'm going to have a psychology office on the side of my house because I thought that was like a thing that you could do all at the same time. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And the reality was those same parts of my five-year-old self became my younger adult self, who was a young parent and a young wife and all those things. The 
the link was that I wanted to help people. I wanted to heal what was broken in myself. I wanted to heal what was broken in my family. I wanted to understand how could a mother abandon her child and leave her with the pedophiles that were her own pedophiles as a child. I didn't understand. I wanted to know more about why people did the things that they do. And as I became more whole in my journey and started to heal, you know, down my journey started as undergrad psychology, sociology, anthropology, then clinical social work and all the things, you know, being the listener, being the helper, like that very professional clinical part of my journey. Um, But I still wasn't healed. I wasn't doing my own therapy yet. I wasn't receiving support from other professionals because I was the go-to, I was the fixer, right? The the one who was trying to figure out what was wrong internally with people so I could vicariously fix my parents, right? Vicariously fix my caregivers through that. And as I went through my own journey of healing um, with multiple years of therapy and advising and spiritual counseling and all of that, I realized that a lot of what was impacting my inner child that was not completely healed yet, that had a lot of fractures and scars and and open wounds in her was showing up in my marriage. It was showing up in my parenting. It was showing up in my sisterhood friends and, and my brother, my brotherships. I call them sisterships and brotherships. They were showing up in my, my friendships that mattered to me. And it was also showing up in the bedroom for me. And I would have never thought that before. So as I started to personally discover that, I was like, hmm, your trauma, actually, we know this logically, but to really like boil it down, it's like your trauma actually does impact you in the most intimate ways beyond just how you show up for work and whether or not you can wear the mask really well, like all the things. Um, so that's what kind of made me pivot a little bit deeper into the, the sexual responses, the, the sexual interests, the sexual exploration of a thing as I was seeing even in myself, like, hmm. I'm a highly sexualized person that's starting to be more limited because of these fractures that were opening up that I hadn't paid attention to because I was so busy, you know, having the buffers of very productive schedules, as many of us do as ambitious women and a few brave men that are listening to this. Uh, So a lot of it quite transparently was me trying to figure out what the hell was wrong with me Um, because I'm very dope and incredible on paper, but I didn't feel like that behind the scenes. Um, I had all the accolades, all the credentials, all the certifications, you guys, all the things. Um, And I was feeling extremely vulnerable and raw on the inside. And the people that mattered to me the most were being impacted in the deepest way. Um, So a lot of the journey for me to get into this work was wanting to be a product of my own product and really knowing that it's possible to not just talk about healing and and growing and beasting out and doing amazing things, but to really embody it. That was important for me. I don't even know how to ask this next question. So it might take me a while to get to it, but (laughs) it seems like you have an internal curiosity that drives you or, or I'm not really sure what it is, but you didn't have role models growing up that were getting advanced degrees and always looking for the truth and looking to learn and grow. You were surrounded by a mother who was addicted to drugs and yep. seemed to be, you know, lying to you and just kind of doing whatever she needed to do to survive, but not necessarily be a great parent. Yeah. And when you're growing up that way and you don't have a role model who's constantly striving for more and better, how do you cultivate that within yourself? And w- where does that come from? 
I do think, you know, there's, and there's science that can support us on this, right? There's some innate responses that are coded in me that I don't quite understand, but I think they are exacerbated by nurturing in your environment. So my nucleus family was beyond the definition of dysfunctional, right? Like they were definitely not nurturing and exacerbating that. Uh, But I had angels that I, I still refer to as that to this day that were mother figures that came into my life at different parts, the neighbor four doors down the street. She had zero idea what was happening in that house, but she knew as a mother intuitively on my face, something's wrong, girl, come, come in here, get a hot dog, right? Like, you know, just something like, let me give you the part of respite that I can give you as the neighbor. Um, I didn't have deep, intimate conversations with her. I was not, you know, crying on her doorstep. I wasn't, sh- you know, pulling up my sleeve and showing bruises or anything, but she gave what she could from the the space that felt not only comfortable for her, but that felt like she could actually impact me. And I was a skinny, big-headed little girl sitting on the step alone. So she was like, let me feed that child, right? Like, let me help her in the one small way that I can and would do other things like Christmas time, give me a coat, you know, just little things that she could do. That was still a stretch for her, but she didn't feel like she was crossing a boundary. She wasn't the person banging on the door saying, bring me this child. I'm going to now take care of her. And I had other women, including some biological aunts who didn't live in the home. They had aged out of the home, went to the military, moved out, you know, did their thing. That would give me respite at times when I was the rebellious kid who was constantly getting in trouble because that's who I'm still the rebellious kid that's constantly figuring out ways to break the rules. I've just learned not to be as reckless as I was as a kid, but they would let me stay for months at a time. Like, okay, before you really do get your face punched through a wall, like in an irreparable way, like come stay with me for a couple of months and then, you know, figure out what we're going to do from here. So I had these pockets of respite that I had to lean in and see as respite versus being the child. And I I know for many people that are listening to this, you understand you might even have a child that's like this that doesn't seem great, grateful for the respite that they're giving. I was really grateful. And I didn't necessarily, I wasn't like always kind about it. I was like, yeah, you're my aunt. You're supposed to let me stay here, right? And and she was like, yeah, and that's why you want to watch these damn kids of mine, right? Like you're going to babysit, <laughs> you know, after your cheerleading practice or whatever. So there was a lot of reciprocity that I had to, I literally had to lean into as part of the consequence of me not having the nurturing family. And instead of seeing it as a very regrettable situation, it just, it was what it was. I was like, all right, I'm the 12 year old kid that has to work to buy toilet tissue. I'm the 14 year old kid that has to work to buy school tokens or has to walk to school. I'm the 16 year old kid that has to take care of her baby brother because her mother's trying to push him out the window whenever she's high and and out of her mind. Like you're that person, you have to do this. So I didn't take it as an option, um, which I think was really part of the strength of it is I didn't look at it like, oh, my life is so horrible. I was like, this is what it is, but this is not how it's going to stay. I hear somebody so strong that I, what I'm most impressed about is that you, is that you were actually able to find your selfishness somewhere in there because you could still be doing that exact same thing. You could still be helping everyone living as if that was your only purpose. And yeah. instead what I got, I, I caught the same thing Angela did. It was that moment of like, oh, she's choosing herself. And I love that you claimed the word selfish right on the title. I love that you, I've seen it on your t-shirt. I love that because when we take a word like that, that's so, 
got so many demons attached to it for so many yeah. of us and we reclaim it. That's where I think your strength lies. I'm hearing somebody who said, oh no, it's not just that I'm going to do something for myself. I'm going to actually claim it and, and say, I need to move past always doing for others and start living for myself. What, what was it that let you claim that word? Let you say like, what, is that something innate in you? Or did you hear something? Mm, that is such a great question, Dr. Jolie. I, so I, again, rebellious, like, and, and biggest battle is me, right? Like, I'm like, I'm my worst competition. I'm my nightmare. I'm also my dream, right? Like, you know, people say like, I'm living my ancestors dream. I don't know what the hell my ancestors were dreaming because none of them mofos was talking to me. But I like, so I'm like cre- <laughs> creating it, you know, for myself. And that constant war is still there. Like I have to war with myself because I'm a giver. I love to give, like my adrenaline increases when I give finding or creating the balance to not overgive is the constant battle that I have to be mindful of. So boundaries are so important to me on so so many levels. So the word to back into your question, the word and it being connected to a book, um, literally a book for selfish dropped into my spirit. It downloaded into me. It was like, what do I need to do? I feel like I'm not reaching people enough. I, I need to do more. It was before I had started the podcast, started podcast podcasting in 2012. Um, and I was like searching for like, how do I reach people? How do I connect? And not just in the business sense, but just knowing the whole reason that I jumped into entrepreneurship is because I knew that I could do so much more for people than having them sit on my proverbial couch, right? Like on a kind of a one-to-one, one-to-two basis, which is very important work. We're not going to take away from that, but it's you not know, the only work. It's not the only work. Exactly. You know, there was more. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I've, I had it downloaded in my spirit and I literally had God tell me your book, the title of your book is selfish. And I battled, I battled with God. I was like, no, I'm the very opposite of selfish. Anyone who knows me, no, right. Cause I was aligned with the old definition and it kept coming up for me. And I wrote like a dozen workbooks and I published some of them and I did all the other things that had nothing to do with selfish. Cause part of it was, I was scared to live out what was going to be required in the rest of my healing. Like I was doing these, these treatments on myself. I would go to therapy. I would talk about a little bit of it. I would acknowledge that I had a narrative. Like, you know how we say like, oh, I know that's me. You know, I got issues. I was that, I was that girl. Like I was the girl that could easily point to herself and say, oh yeah, I have these issues, but wasn't necessarily doing the work to untangle those issues and really uproot them. So they were no longer a part of my my next level narrative, right? I feel that. I feel that so strong because I have lived that story where like you live your heart on your sleeve. You let everybody know that you know where your mm-hmm. defense, like, and it's it's a great defense. It's a great <laughs> defense against actually having to dig into the work. Yeah. It's, it, it looks on the outside, especially to somebody who's maybe a little bit more introverted or a little bit more, um, just wouldn't, wouldn't mm-hmm. offer up these revelations about themselves, right? Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful way to defend against needing to dig in to the real shit. Like, oh yeah, absolutely. Like, really. And the I, layers. I, I mm-hmm. definitely, I did that all through my twenties. It was, I was deep into my, my mid to late thirties before I even started to realize, Oh, Oh, it's not the stuff that I'm willing to disclose. That's not 
the big work. Mm-hmm. The big work is the stuff that I'm still struggling with. So Angela's my best friend. I love talking to her. And I still, I'll call her three days after I've had a meltdown, three days <laughs> after something's happened. And I'll say, oh yeah, I was a total mess. And she's like, well, why didn't you talk to me? Oh, because we don't do that. Because we're the giver. Because we're mm-hmm. the question answer. We're, mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, you are such a good example for me. <laughs> you are, you're preaching. Yeah, absolutely. You are appreciated. You are, I, I talk a lot about the pebbles versus the, the boulder. We mm-hmm. will talk about the pebble problems. Oh, I, my time management is all over the place today, right? Pebble, pebble issue, because most people have not demonized a time management issue, right? Um, yeah, I was arguing with this mofo earlier in the, the day and it just threw me off. No one will question that you had a conflict with your forever love or someone that's in your household. And like, okay, everyone has a day. We've normalized what is acceptable problems versus like, no, for real. So I was laying prostrate on the on the floor and I was snotting into my rug and I couldn't get myself together before I had to go do this thing. And it, it took me into the last minute. Like no one's really talking about that. And to, to your point, after you're already past it. And then you can share it as a success story. Right. Like, unless it's a hashtag win, then yeah, keep Mm -hmm. it in the closet. And I don't know. That is just sharing the stories, just naming it feels so important to me and calling myself out publicly and to my friends. Like, yeah, I'm still, there are still things that feel too tender to admit are true, but that's the human experience, right? That's where our growth actually lies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A a thousand percent. I literally tell people when they come like, oh, well, you're the number one balance and relationship advisor in the world. So you have it all together. And I'm like, that's why I'm the number one balance and relationship (laughs) advisor, because I don't have it all together. And what keeps me up at night is trying to create better systems and processes for other people who are brave enough to say, I need some support with this, regardless of their title and their accolades and all like, none of that matters to me at all. Cause you can have a billion dollars. I know that's not a word. We just made that up, but you can have like a billion dollars. You could be blastered, plastered on like all the billboards. The end of the day, if I am walking across the street and see you about to get hit by a truck, do you care if I'm a janitor? Do you care if, you know, if I don't have two nickels to rub together in, in my, my jean pocket with a hole in it? Like, no, you just care that I support you and help. And that's how I look at everyone. Like, who are you internally? Are you the person to walk past me if you see me broken on the ground because you don't want to get into it? Or are you the person that's going to be like, I may not be the right person for you, but let me call someone. Let me stay with you until help arrives. Those are my people. Like those are the people that I'm hoping to pull in with selfish and with like sharing the story. Like there's hope and victory and possibility on the outside of whatever you think your damage is. Trust me, someone else with accolades and lots of money and portfolio has it worse, but we will only hear about them, Lord forbid, but after they've committed suicide. And it's like, (gasps) oh, Oh no, who knew Kate Spade was going through all this stuff? She had the world. Oh no, who knew Robin Williams, right? Like then we'll be like all shocked, but we're human and we all have gaps and holes and and needs in us. And me calling myself out and being really vulgar and transparent and for some people traumatizing because I've heard like, girl, I was not ready for that. Like, I know you warned us and the preface, but I still wasn't ready. I'm like, I don't want to traumatize anyone, but I want you to know that we are all human as 
powerful and supernatural as we may feel on certain days, we got to bring it back to the reality that it's love. And I need love, just like hopefully you're willing to receive my love. But I don't want to give you more than I'm getting because then I'm not being true to myself. I love that. And I want to ask you about the realization you had before you got into the work you're doing today. And that realization led you to a divorce. And I want you to tell the story because I'm sure there are other women who are listening right now who are on the brink of divorce. And it's a different divorce than they may be thinking of right now and not aware of it. So can you tell us what led up to that point and then what you did about it? Yeah, that was a couple of those moments. I'm trying to think about which one did I share in my 209 pages. Um, I, I had quite a few, you need to, to get it together before you lose yourself moment. So hopefully I'm telling the right version of this story or the, the right divorce moment that's publicly in, in selfish. I like it. We might get like a brand new, yeah. right. you, you, might get, you might get an additional one. Um, there was, for me, there was quite a, quite a few moments. There was the moment with my daughter, who's now my youngest, who's 20, was like seven-ish, between seven and nine years old. And there was the high school moment for my son. Um, my kids were very much, I'm the catalyst for other people. My kids were absolute catalysts for me. Um, going to the high school moment specifically, which was the latter, like my, that, that is it. You have to do something completely different. You have a scarcity mindset. You, you are really interrupting yourself. Uh, my son, who's almost 25, was graduating high school, and I was obligated to go to a conference. Um, I was not even the speaker. I was supporting a friend who was the speaker. I was her plus one and like her assistant like to help. Um, and we're both professionals and all that, but you know how you show up for your girl, right? Like you do what you do, and you know that someone is counting on you being there. So that's that. My son's graduation date got moved. They had a problem with the the rent for the location or something or whatever was going on with the high school. It was a charter high school at the time. And so they changed the date and made it a week earlier than what it was originally supposed to be. And this was the same date of a conference that was out of town for me. So I had to make a decision to either go or not go. And I chose to still go to the work conference. A part of it was quite honestly, it was me being in a, a limited space of thinking like, well, if I don't go to the conference and do the networking and do the meeting that I'm supposed to do. And it wasn't even like a, a disappoint my friend because I know hands down, she would have said like, what, what the hell are you thinking? Like, absolutely go ahead on your business. I actually didn't even tell her that the graduation was happening because I knew she would say, what are you doing? Go like, you know, you tell people what you want them to know, right? We're smart enough to do that. Um, but I knew this was a high level conference. There was all these powerful women. We're in another state, da, 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 all the things. It's like a golfing conference. So you know where I'm going with this, right? Like all the, the schwanky stuff. Um, I assigned my God, my son's godmother, who's one of my best friends since high school. It's like, I need you to show, show up and be in my stead. And of course she rode with me. She went, she met my husband, was there with my daughter. Like the family was there. He had a maternal figure in the room. The irony that he graduated in a, like at the graduation was at Drexel University, which is where I graduated from. And I care, I birthed him in this school. I conceived him in this school. I walked down aisles with him in this school. The irony that he was graduating high school here is like a whole nother podcast episode, right? Um, and then they went and they had all their time. And the whole time at the conference, I'm not fully present. 
I'm not where I want to be. I'm looking at my cell phone constantly waiting for a picture, an image, something, you know, a check-in. I'm running out of the room like, any word now? Is, is he walking in the aisle yet? Like I'm doing all the things. And, you know, we had our after party event and we did all the stuff, but I felt horrible for making the choice. What made me really guarded, and it took me a little while to be divorced from myself because I'm a natural fighter and people's judgments of me of like, you're the mother. Like, how do you go to work and not be at the graduation? That made me almost unapologetic. I was like, what the hell? Because if it was my husband, that wouldn't even have been a question. I would have been like, oh, well, that's his dad. He, you know, that's what he has to do. And when my godson graduated high school, I went in his father's said with my best friend. So we could be the two mothers and no one questioned where the father was because it's okay for the dad to be at work. It's not okay for the mother not to make those choices. But that was my ego. And, and I was right by the way, by all the thoughts that I had to write, I was absolutely right about the hypocrisy of it. But when I stepped back from it, the regret for me was you were in such a scarce space. You thought that you wouldn't be able to make the connections to build the relationships that would lead you to grow the business so you could give your son this future that he wants. If he wants to go to a $70,000 a year college, you want to be able to do that, right? Like, and not be like, mm you don't play sports, you the creative nerdy kid on a skateboard and they don't give scholarships for that, boo. So I don't know what we want to do <laughs> with that, right? Like, and not allow him to be himself. But I had this whole narrative and story over what I had to do in order for him to be what he's destined to be, to become. That was absolutely a divorce moment for me. Um, that was really probably almost as pivotal as the one when my daughter basically shattered my perception of myself because I thought I was this amazing, awesome mother with all my overscheduling of her and her brother, the soccer, the dance, the recitals, you know, all the things that they did. And she was like, you're awesome for everyone else, but you're not here for me. Mm-hmm. And that shattered me. So I had a couple of divorce moments there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and I think the way that you kind of told that story in the book was that you needed to divorce yourself from your old self and create new expectations or or new operating procedures for yourself so that you did put the right priorities first and you that you lived for yourself and for your family and not for all of these shoulds that you had placed on yourself. What advice would you give to someone who who comes to you with that same in that same moment of life of saying I want to put myself first. What would I what do I do? What would you tell them? Yeah, I get that a lot. Um, for most of the married women entrepreneurs and the power couples that we work with, they're often coming successful on paper, houses, cars, the things, right? And they are happy, but they're not as happy as they really want to be. They're like happy surface, happy, the pebble happy, right? Like, but the boulder behind the curtain is like, I got gapes and calcified chaos all up in here and it's toxic and fuming yeah. and I need some assistance with it. Um, so in addition to clarifying, like why, one of my first questions is why now? Cause you can continue doing what you're doing. No one will be the wiser. The world will still think you're dope and great and fantastic. And for the purposes of what you're providing them, you will be. So why do you want to change? And really being honest about removing the superficial kind of Instagram version of their why, like let's get underneath of it in detail. Once we're able to clarify, like, no, I like, I really want to create joy. I want to enjoy the process along my journey. I want to have my legacy now created so that if I'm to leave this earth, my family, friends, whoever their people are, 
can actually not just talk about how hard I worked. If you want to have those kind of stories told, you know, Mm -hmm. about you while you're here and when you're gone, if you start giving me that kind of fodder, I'm a thousand percent with it. But one of the things that I like to do to disrupt someone's thinking of like, I have all the things I need more time for myself, but I don't even know if I have time to meet with you. I give them a time, literally a time frame. Like I'm looking at the clock right now and it says 1.30 my time. I'm like, all right, we're talking is 1.30 at midnight tonight you die. What do you do different? You literally only have that many hours left. What's on your schedule that doesn't need to be there? So like being really aggressively disruptive, like right, just stop, like, in the, in the way that we're talking about it. And they're like, what do you mean? Like you die at midnight. What's on your schedule now that is completely draining from you that doesn't need to be there. How do you do it differently? These are the only hours. There's no treatment. There's no therapy. This is what it is. What do you have? And then once we can start like really like, oh, well, I'm getting caught in all the social media nonsense. I'm feeling like I need to be everywhere, you know, depending on the hat that they're wearing at the, the time a lot of their stories are caught in what they feel like they need to do for their neighbors. Like the Joneses effect. You you guys know that, right? Like, you know, beating out the Joneses, living for the Joneses. And I'm like, who freaking cares about the Joneses? The Joneses want to be like you. That's the reality. They're looking at what they think is your life that you feel is an imposter. And they're saying, oh, we wish we were like Nikita. We wish we were like that. But if Nikita is not really being honest, you're not even really fully able to invest in the, the gift that you could give to the Joneses by being selfish enough to say, let me do the work. Let me have space in my life, which is for me, that's what all selfish behavior is about. It's creating that space where you can do the personal transformation work. You can let go of the toxic people and patterns and you can feel the feels of whatever experiences you're having on. You can learn to forgive you like and all the other layers that go into that. And if you're not willing to do that work, then I usually refer them to someone else quite honestly, like it's, this is, we're going to be best friends and you're going to hate me. This is what this is going to look like, right? Like we're going to laugh and we're going to have a good time and you're going to have a, Oh girl, I got a whole breakthrough moment. I'm like, yes. And then when you do that accountability work, you're going to be like, I hate your life. So next week it's like, it's like, this is why Nikita and I work so well together. Yeah. Somebody who appreciates being hated. Exactly. You know, the strength of it though. Mm -hmm. You I saw in that last story, in that that divorce from your old self, I saw somebody who was willing to hold themselves accountable. Not everybody finds themselves resourced for that. So sometimes it really has to be with with a partner, with with a buddy, with with a therapist or a friend or someone who's got that like that something extra that can help you not just stay in the moment of the divorce from self, but yes. like okay, yeah. And now I'm gonna actually do it. Yeah. I, I did. I found myself going like, oh, I wish this weren't right at the end because now I want to know what happened next. <laughs> <laughs> like, did you find yourself slipping? Did you like, yeah. was it a was it an epiphany moment where you you then had clarity and you could move forward? Or did you find yourself slipping into your old habits? It's grieving, right? Like just like a real divorce for anyone who's listening that may not have gone through it. You, when you're in a, a tangible divorce, you grieve. You're angry, right? Like, fuck him, like, right? Like, you know, or her, whatever the case is. Like, you're mad, 
But then you go into this space of like, oh my God, what did I do? Like, why would you do that? You were so much happier when you knew the devil that was there, when you mm-hmm. understood the, the parameters of what that is and you could work those back rooms and those nooks and crannies. So I absolutely grieve the loss of my old self. Each time I had to divorce myself at those new levels. When my daughter was seven-ish and my son, they're three and a half years apart, almost four when he was whatever that age is, and my math is bad, like 11, <laughs> when he was between that age, I was in a very different stage of my business, of my life, of my mindset. Like I was in a very different stage of all kinds of things. So that divorce gave me all of the cycles of grieving to get to the next level. And then I thought I had it together, right? Like this is why people get married multiple times, right? Like you thought you knew better. You thought, and you did, you learned some lessons, you improved, you didn't repeat certain mistakes, but there were still some pieces of you that weren't fully healed. Maybe you even chose not to appreciate that that was something that needed to be fixed because the big gaping wound you had paid attention to and you had cut it off at the knees and divorced it, right? Like you did that. I did all of those things. And then I got into another marriage with myself, so to speak, and was like, oh, I don't like this either. Like (laughs) this is, you know, like this is not a still not the future 100X version of myself. Like I'm probably like the 20X version of myself now. I want 100X mm-hmm. and then eventually infinity. And I do respect the process. Like I do know now, didn't know then, but I know now I have to like move along all through those uncomfortable spaces. Cause if I skip steps, I'm going to skip seeing some of those rooted infections be all because I was like, well, concentrate on the skin, the outer, and instead of going in like mm, your kidney needs some, some attention, right. And being really mindful of that. So I think at each of those times, I honestly, fully transparently, I went through a grieving process with myself. I felt really good. I was all empowered. I was all hyped. Screw her. Like I'm over it. Right. And then it was like, oh, but I miss her. She was a badass. She will punch you in the throat in 2.2 seconds. And I even <laughs> think about it. Right. And so, and I know you ladies probably have connected to that idea when someone tests you in your business or in your life and you're like the old me, woo, the old me <laughs> would have handled this so differently. And you wouldn't even have thought about testing that person. But for some reason, because I am whole (laughs) and I am healed and I am better, you attract really, really good people. But there's a few that slip in to show you Mm -hmm. that there are still some (laughs) things wrong. Right. And Mm -hmm. you, you have to deal with that. And there were times when I honestly, even after writing the book and it took me eight and a half years to go through all my process, there were absolutely times where I'm like, (laughs) see, see, what they're not understanding is my goal is to stay out of jail, <laughs> but <laughs> you're pushing me, right? And like, and I've had those like moments where I'm like, mm-hmm. Nikita, you've worked too hard. You've done so well. You are a warrior. You will always be a warrior, but your new way of warring isn't to physically flail out. Like you don't have to, no one's coming into your bedroom to hurt you. Like you don't have to physically do that. Now you can war differently. You can use your mind. You can call a lawyer. Like you can do it differently now and really shifting into that space when it was easier to just punch you in the throat is, you know, that still a moment as the number one balance of relationship advisor in the world, where I can honestly say, I have a moment where I'm like, Hmm, T or taser, <laughs> which one 
do I want to, you know, pull out in this moment? And, you know, the, the shift is really in choosing not to be that older version that, you know. Yeah. So if I was sitting in your office right now and you just asked me that question about what would I do between now and midnight? And I looked at my schedule and I thought, probably none of this. What would we do next? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Angela, that was awesome. Cause I do get that. You're like, mm, I wouldn't do anything and I would be going to divorce court, but we don't have time for that. So. <laughs> um, then we would, we would literally work inwards, right? Like we would be deductive and say, okay, so what do you want to do? And let's look at what parts of you feel really good and juicy. So I walk you through body scanning, like what feels good when I say a thing. So if I say, how does it feel to think about dipping your body into a a room temperature, like warmish kind of lake? How does that feel? If that makes you feel anxious and tense and tight because you don't swim, okay, then we're going to move away from bodies of water, right? Like, so I'll walk you through like a cold guided meditation of sorts um, where I'm chopping it into pieces and it's very interactive for what feels good. So we can help you discover what more do you want to see on your schedule? And then we can find the one thing to put on there that will build you to that place. So for me, balance is a formula of admitting your truth over the boundaries that you create to achieve that truth. That's all it is. It's not about 50-50 or 70-30 anything. It's what do you really want and how can we create the space so you can get it? Which also means creating some really good expansive boundaries that keep distractions out of keeping you from getting that thing that you really want. So we kind of literally work deductively to get to that space. Um, So it's a process. It's a whole good 50 minutes before we can get to it. For some people, there's so much entanglement that we may have to go through a whole talent skills gift, you know, diagram of like breaking out the good pieces, bringing up childhood. Well, what did you used to do? Oh, you used to dance. Why did you stop dancing? Oh, because someone told you that you weren't as good as your sister. Okay. But how did dancing make you feel, right? Like, so sometimes the therapeutic part, the licensed clinical social worker trauma specialist has to come out to help you like really untangle. Um, Some people have done so much self-help work and have like, you know, obsessed over a lot of it that they can jump right into, yeah, well, I used to really love art, painting and reading. And then my family told me that wasn't going to pay the bills. And so I just like skipped all those pieces of me. So then we can kind of know where to jump right in the water, so to speak, and go from there. But for other people, it's a lot more entangled. So it, it really is unthreading. I'm trying not to use entangled so much because I hear like Will Smith, Jada Pickett come up a lot. When I, <laughs> they did. They sort of trademarked the word. There. They did. They point, right? Exactly. But we, we are kind of untangling what was entangled and rooted as anchors of emotional shame and guilt and resentment and sometimes rage for people that have literally calcified on top of what was their dream. That's literally, which is their purpose. It's been buried underneath of everyone else's expectations. And part of how to get there is literally to be selfish, like to choose to be selfish enough to have space to do the work and get clarity about what you want. Well, I love that you turn to the body's wisdom and get people out of their heads first, because that's where all those stories live, right? About what they should be doing. And do you find that it's hard for people to be able to tune into their body if they've been just living in their head their whole life? Yeah, it's one, it's so painstaking and it's painful for both of us. And I tell them all the time, I'll be like, John, listen, 
and I need you to stand up, shake it out because right now you're in the, I don't know, you know, when you get that a lot, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. It's just as horrible as when people are like, oh, I already know. I already know, but I'm not doing it, right? Like Mm -hmm. when we get like the opposite pendulum swing of that continuum. So if it's John or Jane or whoever it is, I literally physically have them disrupt the pattern that's going on. So our sessions are really interactive. If it's a couple, I'm like, grab her butt, hold his waist, like pull in, right? Like let's disrupt this like really soft, touchy thing that you're doing because that's not how we're going to build emotional intimacy, let alone anything sexy, fiery, and hot. Dr. Jolie, you know where I'm going with this, right? Like <laughs> for we all have the to disrupt. We have, yeah. I hear you and throughout, threaded throughout all of this, I hear you disrupting the, the patterns that we've got, but also a willingness to grieve the pattern. Yeah. Because when we, when we move out into our body, like the, for those of us, me included, who lived in our heads the whole damn time. When we finally move into our bodies, there's a lot to grieve. There are all sorts of pains and stuff you you didn't even realize you were storing there. I mean, uh, so creating the space Mm -hmm. for, okay, and we're going to acknowledge it, allow it to be mourned, and then then disrupt and and have a new pattern, invent something new that really gets you to that 100x self. Yeah, we create it. Like I stand and we create our realities. We create our bounds. We don't find it. We create our joy. We don't curate it. You know, all the little cute little Instagram hashtags. Like I get it. I feel you. And I totally disagree because the the finding gives power to something else. Like you guys talk about claiming the stage, like claim your power. Don't go find it. Claim it. It's already there. We just got to tack on to it right and like love Lizzo style like love all the pieces of your belly like <laughs> love all the things and you can't do that if you're so in your head and there's analysis paralysis and you're ruminating and perseverating over all the things because now you're just talking yourself out of owning the deeper richer juicier good parts of you because it's uncomfortable um, and I know we all like hear the, what is it, the the metaphor, like get used to, be, get uncomfortable, being comfortable, like, you know, whatever the, the thing is everyone says, it's true. It's like, it's a thing that everyone says, but it's really true. Like we have to tap in because when you get past all the yucky, ooky, tense parts that make you cry and snot into your rug and, and do all the things, there's like sensory experiences that feel good and are orgasmic. Like there's all kinds of juiciness that's underneath of it, but we got to do the work to get through that hard calcified part first. Absolutely. Well, Nikita, thanks so much for coming on the show today and thank you for writing your book. It's, it's so inspiring to hear, to just read your story and see what you've been through and what you continue to do for people. Can you tell us a little, let me just share with everyone a little synopsis of your book and then where to get it. Yeah, absolutely. So selfish, um, which is the main title, and then it's permission to pause, live, love, and laugh your way to joy. It's my survivor memoir. It's not a business book. Uh, It is a personal transformation book because it's about my personal transformation. And I am prayerful that it will literally give hope and victory and awareness to people, whether you relate to the specific stories or not, that it opens up an awareness and relatability in you that if 
these things are happening and you align energetically with the emotion that was happening in these moments, regardless of the thing that was happening in these moments, if it's sparking that for you, then I hope you allow it to ignite you to the other side. Like I am truly living a life where I teach and preach and sell the very thing that I am being. And that's what I'm hoping for other people, that they are living fully enough to no longer feel like they have to be in this constant state of imposter syndrome. And the burnout is happening because we're anchored to other expectations, including private ones of ourselves that are no longer serving us. You know, those narratives, those scripts that were planted into us by our our nurturers or those that were supposed to be in a nurturing space for us, they created it. And I'm hoping and prayerful that you are breaking free by just moving through the pages and allowing yourself to awaken to the ignition that I hope is selfish for you. Um, it is available at 400,000 locations online and in stores when stores are a thing and they're open. Uh, so you could literally truly go anywhere, but the easiest place for people are like a Barnes and Nobles or an Amazon to just plug in Nikita Thigpen and Selfish will come right up. Do not buy the Kardashian version of the Selfish Selfies because that's not my book. I do not have a book full of selfies of me, which is what <laughs> is the other major selfish that's up there. <laughs> There's no pictures in this book at all. <laughs> so yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and, and being here with us today. It was it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. I'm honored. Jolie and I hope you love listening as much as we love making this show. If so, tell us by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or share it with a friend. Claim the Stage is a production of Speaker Sisterhood and is produced in the Glitter Closet in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Music is composed by Kelly Vogel of Sound Passage. All right, that does it for us this week. Until next time, stop waiting, start creating. Bye for now.